Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. have the conversation about defunding uh, the police later in the week in a more robust way. I just want to give you a few conversational points today um, because this may be a conversation that erupts where you are. And so I just want you to to have some information to work with. Um, Funding for your local police department Um, and funding for your corrections institutions in your local community um, do have three funding streams. One of those is local, one, I mean, extremely local, like your city. Um, Another one of those is state funding. And then um, the third contributor is the federal government. And currently the federal government is actually the smallest um, of those contributors in terms of your community policing And so in the conversation about funding, I think that um, maybe taking a little bit of heat out of the conversation and actually getting some facts about how the police are funded in your community. Um, And you can, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of places online that you can find accurate uh, information about the way the police and corrections expenditures are met where you are. I just think it's really, really important to recognize that police and corrections, so maybe if we take those as the money that we spend locally on um, on law enforcement, police and corrections, um, they are really, really, really small compared to what we spend on highways and roads, health and hospitals, higher education, elementary and second ed, and public welfare. Public welfare is um, the uh, largest direct general expenditure at both the local and the state level across all 50 states. And um, police and corrections are uh, at the bottom of the list. So part of the conversation about funding the police should be, I think, about um, how much the police are funded now and why they are funded, um, why we fund public safety. Maybe we should change the language. Maybe that would help um, the way in which we, we fund public safety at such a low level compared to the way we fund other things. Um, you, there will be some of you who would also maybe just simply like the word um, uh, about defunding Planned Parenthood as a balance to the conversation about defunding the police. Um, there are efforts uh, to defund Planned Parenthood, to have taxpayer money no longer go um, to the support uh, of Planned Parenthood. And so if there are those who are really robustly excited about defunding the police in your local community, see if they are equally excited about defunding Planned Parenthood. And I, I, I offer you that because sometimes it helps people um, have a, a more balanced or reasonable conversation when we just simply introduce a slightly uh, a, a storyline from a different part of our cultural narrative. Uh, and so uh, I just I offer those today. We will certainly return to the conversation um, about defunding the police, which, by the way, um, 
it would be one thing to defund the police. It would be an entirely different thing to come up with a new way, uh, an entirely new way of um, of of enforcing the laws that we have all mutually agreed upon are good and necessary. Um, defunding the police, having the police go away um, is not going to resolve crime. In fact, I mean, it's just it will just be the opposite. And so um you know, let's let's participate in this conversation in a really sober way, and we'll return to it in the coming days. First up this morning, uh, during this hour, Dr. Linda Mental, she and I are going to talk about uh, ways to cope with community violence. We're also going to talk about pain and suffering and how to deal with them. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my fight. Joining me now, Dr. Linda Mental. You know her from the Dr. Linda Mental Show. You can find her online at drlindamental.com. Linda, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. It's been a it's been an interesting and difficult week. Um, I hope that as we are moving through all of this and processing what's going on, I hope that your listening audience and all of us are learning one thing from everything that's been happening, and that is that we need to listen to different perspectives. And we need to be respectful. We need to be civil. We need to have dialogue. We need to be in conversations with people who don't think like us all the time and not get reactive in those conversations. I really hope that that's what the church can do. We are supposed to be marked by our love in everything that we do. We are to love our brother, whether we uh, we disagree with them or not. So I hope as you bravely have conversations, that uh, listeners will respect different approaches, different perspectives. Doesn't mean they have to agree with you all the time, but it certainly does mean that we have to be respectful and civil. And if we do not have love in our hearts and we lash out on social media or we lash out at brothers and sisters who might have differences of opinions, we are not showing the love of Christ. And I think that reminder to me is always, I need to treat others how I would like to be treated. And that is something that I think we have to keep in mind when we're moving forward with very difficult issues. These issues we're talking about are complex. They're not a single solution focused. And we have to have a lot of work going forward in order to do the things that we know we need to do. Linda, it occurs to me when Jesus um, meets the woman at the well in John chapter, doing this off the top of my head, four? Um, um, you know, that is a woman who, with whom nobody is supposed to talk. And, and he talks with her, um, and he resolves the crisis that she didn't even know she was having, right? The need for a savior. Um, and she goes back into town, and, you know, she, she shares Jesus with other people. Um, I, am, I am assuming that uh, even though Jesus spent a couple of days there, that the challenges that that woman was facing in her life um because of of all of the the circumstances and some decisions and on and on and on um i am assuming that there was still hard work to do in that community for that woman to um to actually then have a life that was worth living where she could go to the well in the morning with the other women like the the restoration of human relationships is hard even when all the people come to jesus that's right. That's right. And I think one of the things that we can 
learn again from that story and other stories. And we don't really have a lot of follow up on a story like that in terms of those long term consequences. But, you know, when we're talking about community violence, none of us would recommend that as a strategy in order to get your voice heard. But I, as a mental health person, I am always trying to understand what is the root of all of that. And when you see a man murdered on the streets of Minneapolis in such a brutal way, the hate that is in the heart of somebody who could do that is just on display in such a, a, a visual way that it should prompt a lot of Christians to say, deep down, there is a lot of hate. Where does that come from? That comes from the enemy. This is also a spiritual battle with the enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And so as we're moving forward with solutions and community work and all the things that we need to do, we also need to be on our knees praying against that, you know, doing warfare against the enemy who is breeding this type of hate in the in the lives of people uh, people need uh, to be transformed in their hearts, and that doesn't mean that we stop doing all the advocacy things that we need to do, but we also need to recognize there is a spiritual level to this that has raised its ugly head in such a visible way, and I think that's why the white church needs to pay attention to this, because this is directly in the Bible. You know, hate has been with us since Cain and Abel, and violence has started in the in the early parts of Genesis, and it has not relented. And we have a, a group, a collective group of people in the black community who have been, um, you know, de, de, uh, just treated in inhuman ways for so long that after a while, that collective, um, you know, way of being treated has to have some ways of expression. And I, again, I'm not advocating violence. I'm just trying to understand my black brothers and sisters in the church. And I wanna hear the conversations. I wanna hear differences. And we, I don't wanna be reactive to what they're saying. I want to listen and learn and understand and then figure out ways that we can move forward. I'm talking with Dr. Linda Mental. Um, we're talking about just the realities in which we find ourselves in these days. We're gonna take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, the experience that we all are having. We're having it in different ways, but um, the experience of violence in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our country and around the world, um, what that has to do with grief and how we cope with it. That conversation up next with Dr. Linda Mental. We'll be right back. Today, I'm hungry and I'm ready for change. I run too far to still be the same. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Linda Mental, you can find her at drlindamental.com. You can also find her here at the Dr. Linda Mental Show on the Faith Radio Network. Um, Linda, let's talk about the relationship that uh, violence has to grief, and then let's talk about ways to cope with community violence. So, look, we, we all like stability. We all like to be feeling like we're safe. We like predictability in our lives. And all of us have lost that during the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic. We have lost our sense of safety. We don't understand yet the virus completely. Uh, we had a great show this past weekend on Faith Radio with a physician who really explains this to us in terms of what is still what we still have to contend with. So there is still an element of, un, you know, being not safe from all of this yet. 
Uh, we've lost our routine. We were grieving the other night. My husband and I were talking about we're very social. We love to have friends over. We love to entertain and get together and, you know, get together even with Bible studies and prayer groups and things. We've lost all of that. We've not been able to do that in our home. It's not the same when you're doing it on Zoom. It's a, it's the best we have but it is not the same. So we've all lost that sense of community, that sense of touch. Uh, when I went to see my son, because he's in a, a high risk um, profession, I couldn't touch him and we, we couldn't even hug. And, and that is a real loss and that is grief. And then you uh, pile onto all of this, you know, the reopening, trying to get back to some sense of our normalcy and then all the unrest that is is going on. There is just a collective sense of grief, I think, in our country. And the violence is bringing that just to the forefront because it's such lawlessness in front of us that we're starting to see uh, people just feeling overwhelmed, anxious, uh, you know, worrisome, depression, post-traumatic stress. I I don't think it's a good idea for people to watch over and over these news reports of violence. We know from the traumatic stress uh, uh, research that even witnessing violence can have the same impact on your brain as if you were in the violence itself. And so we need to be very protective of our kids in terms of how much we expose them to images of violence over and over. And if they are seeing something on the news, then there needs to be a lot of conversation about what they're seeing, how to process that, what are they feeling? Again, listen to them, what are they feeling? Don't just project what you think is going on, but listen to what they are experiencing and then help them cope and help them build up the type of resiliency that we need to deal with when we have difficult times like this. Resilience seems to be a really, um, not only important quality um it, it's a it's an important word um in the time in which we're living so talk a little bit about resilience at the personal level and then talk about resilience um in community so it's very important and, and it's not something we like to focus on because we feel a little bit selfish about this but it's very important when there is so much chronic stress going on around you to do some self-care and this is where it's really important to eat well, to not be, you know, sitting down every night with alcohol and medicating yourself and or checking out with all kinds of escapism. You need to be able to exercise, to eat well, to try to get good sleep. That type of self-care will put you in such a better mindset to deal with all the stress that is going on with you. You also need to, you know, have some moments in your family life where you can laugh, where you can enjoy each other, maybe play a game. And, and I've heard a lot of uh, white people say, I, I can't do that because then I feel guilty because there's so many problems. And I'm like, you have to celebrate life. We, we can get so caught up in important issues. And I'm not saying that they're not important, but we also have to have moments of rest and respite and laughter and uh, celebrating our, our families so that we have to keep those moments in, in this difficult time. I think that's really important. Routine is another way to uh, be able to help yourself during a time of this chronic stress. I mean, COVID has not gone away. We're still dealing with it. They're unrest. Racial problems are are there. They have been there. The difference is now they've been more we've been more aware of how bad it really has been for a lot of people. So that is not going away overnight. We're working towards solutions on both of those things, but we're not there yet. So we have to be able to 
dig deep in the word and get our spiritual refreshment. We have to dig deep in our physical lives, exercise, eat well, have a lifestyle that will refresh us as well. And then emotionally, we have to stay connected to other people around us and lift each other up. I, I've been having lots of conversations with my colleagues. A lot of them are physicians. And, you know, we get overwhelmed with the burden of what we're seeing um, in communities and especially, you know, with COVID and all the ways that that's impacting uh, communities. And we have to encourage each other in the Lord. You know, Carmen, what my life verse is not to grow weary in doing good. And I feel like during this time, it's easy just to check out and say, I'm exhausted. I can't keep thinking about this, looking at this, I'm just going to pull back. But that's probably the wrong thing to do because we need to help each other in community. And the communities that we live and we work with, um, you know, we need to be able to stay in contact with people, listen, be supportive, pray for others, encourage each other, and then work together in terms of doing things that are actually safe and that will build up our communities. All right. So we have some listener questions, Linda. Um, some of them revolve, and we don't have a lot of time, but some of them revolve around explaining um, Black Lives Matter and just in terms of the language of that um, for those who are tempted to respond that all lives matter. And then um, a very specific and direct question, and I don't know if, if you haven't watched this or don't know about it, please don't feel compelled to to respond. Um, but someone just asking for your opinion about Candace Coleman on Facebook. I don't not even exactly sure I'm know the question there. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me give you an analogy that I heard um, from somebody that was really helpful about the Black Lives Matter. <clears throat> um, you know, the, the, the analogy was if you lived in a neighborhood and there are all these houses, all these houses on your street matter. You have a street. Every house is important. People live there. They do life there. They're in community. But if one of the houses goes on fire you wouldn't walk around that community and going, well, that house is on fire, but you know what? All houses matter in our community. You would pay attention to the house that's on fire. And what I heard from a um, black clinical psychologist, I thought it was very good to say that until you put out the fire on that one house that's on fire, then you can say that all houses matter. So I think in some ways, that's a really good way to think about when people say black lives matter, it's there's a fire that's been in that house for a very long time that we need to help put out. Um, and that that is what that's about. It's not a diss to the rest of, of people. All, of course, all lives matter. We know that as Christians, that all lives matter. But we have to be going where the fire is. And that's what Jesus did. You know, He went to the people that were orphaned and widowed and that were the disenfranchised and the people who needed the help. Um, so I think that's a good way to talk about that and try to understand that a little bit better. Um, in terms of the Candace Owen video, I watched it. Um, um, I, I wanted to hear another perspective. She definitely gives another perspective. I think the one thing that was very disturbing to me in that video was that I would never put down the life of another person, regardless of whether or not they were imprisoned whether they were addicted and had drug issues. You know, addiction is a chronic brain disease. It's not a moral failure. It's not something that people, it's a chronic brain disease that needs treatment, not vilification. So I think for me, one of the things that did bother me, while I, I, I want to hear her perspective and she had some good things to say, I don't believe as a Christian, I can support uh, vilifying another human being in any way. 
God came for every person who was struggling and who has issues. And Jesus went to the broken and he went to the people who were hurting. And as Christians, we need to never engage in that kind of vilification of other people and treat them less than who they are. Everybody has worth regardless of their their past and their um, maybe questionable behavior. Our job is to lead them to the Lord and help them understand their worth in Christ. And then transformation begins to happen in people's life uh, with Jesus. Uh, Linda, as always, thank you so much for um, for your tone, for your content, for bringing the gospel to bear, all of it. Uh, that's Dr. Linda Mental. You can find her online at drlindamental.com. You can also find her here on the Dr. Linda Mental Show across the Faith Radio Network. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. So helpful. We'll be right back. We certainly live in interesting times. There you go. That might be the understatement of the day. Uh, Nearly 17 million individuals have now signed an online petition at change.org related to justice for George Floyd. Um, I had a listener who asked me to talk about a change.org petition related to uh, having George Soros deported from the United States of America. And so when I went to change.org, um, what's trending is actually the justice for George Floyd uh, change.org petition. Uh, the Soros deportation uh, petition has 195 signatures. Uh, the justice for George Floyd, um, 17 million. So in terms of the energy of conversations happening in the country like, right now, let's be clear about where the energy is in the conversations of our day. That doesn't mean that we just jump on board because 17 million other people have jumped on board, right? It does mean there are conversations to which we need to be listening and in which we must be engaging as Christians with a a genuinely gospel perspective, a redemptive perspective. All right, next up, giving us a little bit of a global and generational perspective on things happening around the world, uh, David Aikman returns, editor of Godspeed magazine. We're going to talk about the global protests related to George Floyd. And we're also going to talk about the anniversary of the courageous protesters who stood in Tiananmen Square. Those conversations up next. This is Max Locato. Some things were not made to coexist. Long-tailed cats and rocking chairs, bad combination. Bulls in a china closet, not a good idea. Blessings and bitterness, (laughs) That's the mixture that doesn't go over well with God. Perhaps you sampled it. Gratitude doesn't come naturally. Self-pity does. Belly aches do. Yet they do not mix well with the kindness we've been given. I attended a banquet where a soldier was presented with the gift of a free house. He nearly fell over with gratitude. He hugged the guitar player in the band, the woman on the front row. He thanked the waiter, the other soldiers. He even thanked me and I didn't do anything. Shouldn't we be equally thankful? John 14, 2 says God is building a house for us. And our deed of ownership is every bit as certain as that of a soldier. The grateful heart sees every day as a gift. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Joining me now, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Uh, Happy belated birthday, sir. Well, thank you very much, Carmen. I appreciate uh, 
the greeting and the invitation to be on again. Now, my birthday is tomorrow. Would you like to sing? I'm just kidding. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm not kidding about my birthday. I'm kidding about the singing. Well, I, I wouldn't like to sing, but I would like to greet you. Very happy birthday tomorrow. And may you have a very blessed year ahead of you. So uh, thank you, sir. Very well. I feel like it is it is it should be regarded as significant that David Aikman and Carmen LeBurge and President Donald Trump all share a birthday week. Oh, when is President Trump's birthday? June the 14th. Oh, really? Okay. there you go. I know. I know. It probably says something that there's, you know. God thinks a lot of this particular week. I don't know. There you go. Um, yes, okay. What a what a, a trio of talented people having both <laughs> in the same week. Oh, sir. Okay, let's talk about um, the global protests related to George Floyd. Um, so obviously, we pay most close attention to what's happening in our own country. So tell us a right. little bit about what is happening. Um, we are we are seeing scenes from London. And we are hearing about um, uh, about protests in Bristol that uh, were were quite robust. Talk a little bit about what's happening globally. Well, first of all, what's happening in England is that there have been several protests. And in Bristol, they started doing what uh, people have been doing, protesting in southern states, tearing down statues of eminent individuals. Um, And in this case, the statue that they pulled down was a person who had contributed a huge amount from his private fortune to Bristol to make the city prosper. He's got buildings named after him, a fellow called Edward Cholton. And unfortunately, he also happened to be a slave trader, which is not a very good profession. Uh, certainly not in the light of today's protests. So the unfortunate habit of trying to destroy historical statues um, associated with people because they lived in their time and their time tolerated certain activities. And it's thought, well, what you have to do is you have to take down anything that reminds you of who they were. And this is, a, I think, a very unfortunate habit. Um, and the other thing that's going on in Australia, the uh, protests were really orchestrated by Black Lives Matter was strongly representing the fact that Aborigines or indigenous native Australians um, have been treated quite badly as a whole by society. That's an indisputable fact, but um, I don't think they've started pulling down statues yet, but that may be something we'll we'll develop later on. Well, and in terms of uh, here in the United States, I mean, if uh, if we were going to uh, eliminate from our from you know all of our public witness anyone who uh, owned slaves uh, or participated in any way um, in the slave trade, um, we would have to pull down our nation's capital and most of, of course, our of premier educational institutions. Um, because so so I do think you you make a very very valid point 
we have to find ways to have these conversations um, that build up and do not uh, discontinue to tear down. I think that's a really helpful perspective. Um, any well, other observations well, that you go ahead? Mm-hmm. Well, what you really have to do is you have to tear down any painting of Adam and Eve because the problem mm. of original sin started in the Garden of Eden. And that's the problem where racism, every other vile activity of the human beings began. So do you want to completely eliminate all historical records of what the human race has been doing for the last several thousand years? I don't think that's a very good principle. Right. What we want to, I think what we want to um, trumpet and build upon is uh, legal freedom for all Americans, movements toward equality, genuine civil rights. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, yes, uh, Washington owned slaves, but he also freed them. Um, and history is full of of ironies. I mean, King David uh, may be chief among them in terms of where we might look scripturally for evidence of these kinds of conversations. So, um, David, David, let's um, let's turn here. Let's take a very brief break and then let's turn to um, Tiananmen Square. I want you to share with people your experience um, and then talk a little bit about this particular uh, year's anniversary and maybe why it is uh, particularly significant. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. David, uh, take us take us to Tiananmen Square. Well, um, I'd better give you a brief introduction, uh, introduction to my experience. I arrived in China a week before the Tiananmen Square massacre, and I spent the first week in Shanghai uh, talking to students and seeing what's happening at the universities. And in general, Shanghai handled the situation quite well. It sent its students away uh, on vacation earlier than normal, and everything was fine. When I arrived in Beijing, I realized I had an intuition, I think a reporter's nose for news, it's sometimes called, that something very drastic would happen because I'd actually predicted in a CNN interview um, about two weeks earlier, that there would be a crackdown and hundreds, maybe thousands of people would be killed. So I wanted to see what the square looked like. So I went straight from the airport to the square, and there was really a sort of vacation atmosphere. People were wheeling around their bicycles. They were, there were different um, stalls selling this, uh, promoting this or that particular activity. Everybody seemed very cheerful. But then as the afternoon wore on, things got a lot stickier. The um, soldiers started coming out of the the uh, Great Hall of the People main government building on Tiananmen Square, and they were surrounded by students, and there were some very nasty confrontations not with guns at this point, but uh, soldiers taking off their belts and swinging them across the faces of the students, causing quite a lot of damage. And by the early evening, 
they uh, a crowd had gathered outside the Great Hall of the People and was shouting slogans like uh, "Li Pong resigned." He was the uh, senior Chinese official at that time, and uh, that obviously wasn't going to happen. And then I went back to my hotel to write an advisory to my editor saying, it's almost certainly going to happen tonight. And at 10 o'clock at night, it started in the west of the city um, on the way, on the main road, on the Chang'an Avenue to Tiananmen Square. And soldiers started coming in trucks. And by about 2.30 a.m., they had taken the square. And at that point, I got a phone call from my colleague, who was also covering it, that uh, we, we had decided to play tag reporting the story. And so I went up to the square, and it was really very, very difficult. I mean, the, there were soldiers sitting cross-legged across the, uh, across the street to Chang'an Avenue, there was shooting going on, and uh, you had to be quite careful. People were sort of being wounded and taken away on flatbed, bicycle sort of ambulances all the time. And uh, when you were riding down the street, you could hear the sound of bullets passing overhead. Soldiers were shooting over the heads of the crowd to try and get them to move away from the square. So there was shooting proceeding for several hours on the morning of the 4th of June, and then finally it stopped, and uh, the whole thing just really ground to a halt, and it was a very difficult situation. And let me just give me one, give you one anecdote. As I was going around with my bicycle, an elderly Chinese came up to me. And, you know, Chinese are very polite people. They're very reserved. And he, it was an unusual thing. He approached me as a foreigner. He said, thank you for telling the world what the Chinese government is doing to the Chinese people. And I thought, that's the best compliment I've ever had as a reporter for all of my years doing this job. David, um, I'm wondering how you react to uh, a New York Times headline just this past week um, saying why China may call the world's bluff on Hong Kong. The U.S. looks weak. Business is falling in line. Protests have been muted for Beijing. The damage to the city and its own reputation from seizing greater control may be worth it. Um, basically, the world is standing by while China is doing what was once unthinkable, which is imposing its will on Hong Kong in a way that um, is very likely to permanently damage uh, this former British colony economically, politically, um, and certainly in terms of the liberty that people living in Hong Kong have experienced now for generations. Um, how, how do you respond and react to what's happening today? Well, of course, China is going to communize Hong Kong. It's already started the process with this security law, which allows the authorities in Hong Kong to 
arrest people and, if necessary, remove them to China, um, and also allows the Hong Kong government to introduce mainland police and soldiers um, or people's armed police to help them control the city. I mean, I don't think protests are going to stop. So it's going to be a very nasty few months while they sort of put the nuts and bolts in place. I think China is never going to recover uh, from its reputational damage for what it's doing in Hong Kong. Um, nor do I think they particularly care because I think they see themselves as the as the future and uh, and the U.S. as the past. Yes, you're right. They they made the claim that it's the China's century, but I think they are going to suffer a lot of internal consequences because of unrest in their own country and the fact that. This unrest is not going to die down completely. There are going to be persistent complaints. And I think we're going to see what happened in the Soviet Union actually happen in China. I don't know when that will be, but I'm sure it will happen. Yeah, because the the desire to be free lives in every person, um, regardless of the time and place in which they live. So uh, with you, I know we're going to be praying for Christians and others in Hong Kong. Um, and we'll also be praying for a fresh wind of God's spirit uh, across China that um, when when God uh, wills it to be so, the people would rise up. I, I don't know what else uh, to pray for. That would be my prayer yes. for those living under uh, uh, communism in China. Well, uh, let me say one last thing. I used to say to a lot of Chinese officials, if I was sitting next to them on a plane ride in China, I said, you better be nice to the Christians of your country, because they're going to be the only people to stop you being swung from a lamppost when the revolution comes against the Communist Party. And they were shocked by that. But I think many of them realized that what I was saying was a moral truth. Yeah, because in the midst of uh, demands for justice, we also recognize the need for mercy. So, uh, David, thank you. Uh, That's probably a word for all of us, no matter where we live today. So thank you. Thank you, sir, so much. Blessings upon you. Thanks. Thanks, Carmen. Right. God bless. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. I'm going to conclude with a request uh, we have received for prayer. Our brother, Tim Keller, who many of you will recognize his name, not only as an author, but as a pastor in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller is uh, battling pancreatic cancer, and he has asked us to join him in prayer. We are praying uh, specifically not only for uh, his physical healing, but we're praying for Kathy. We're praying for the Keller family, um, and we're praying that uh, that God would use this um, in not only Tim's life, but uh, in in the life of the kingdom for the kingdom's advance. Those are the prayers of our brother. He has asked us that we would join him in those prayers, um, and we are thankful to God for his life and ministry. So lifting up prayers today for Tim and Kathy Keller, uh, also continuing to lift up prayers for Ravi Zacharias's family and the RZIM ministry as they proceed forward um, without him in terms of physical leadership, but continuing to follow him as their spiritual head. So there you go. 
on prayers today for the kingdom and the king. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.